this morning. I want to read to us just one verse out of 1 Corinthians 11 as we come to consider the subject of uh, preparation for the Lord's Supper. What, what does it mean for us to prepare to come to the table and prepare to take the elements? And the Apostle Paul in that lengthy section in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, when he comes to give what we call the warnings, and, and maybe we who are reformed use the language fencing the table, um, I actually prefer to think that we're fencing people because we're protecting them if they are not um, in a state where they can language places is worthily uh, partake. And yet, nevertheless, he gives those warnings. And when he does so, the Apostle Paul uh, says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. As Dr. Ross mentioned, when we're dealing with the Lord's Supper, there is so much that we don't know, and there are so many difficult nuances. Um, I certainly don't pretend to have um, any of the things I'm about to talk about all figured out. Uh, just as he mentioned in his talk earlier, uh, we are going up to a high mountain, and there are lots of areas that are unexplored. There are lots of areas we have not traveled. There are lots of things that we don't fully understand. And even a brief survey of the practice of the Lord's Supper in our own day, let alone in church history on the whole, shows um, in, the, in the different approaches just how difficult a subject this is. And uh, when we come to consider the, the subject of preparing for the Lord's Supper, we very quickly realize um, uh, that there's, there's not a sort of standard guide for us to follow. The Bible gives us very little by way of instruction. We have that very clear word here in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself. Um, but that's, that needs to be unpacked and explained and then set into context in our churches and and how the practice then develops out from there. And, and as, I've noticed, we, as, as I've noted, we, we have a lot of bad examples in our own day. I heard a story recently, and when you're a pastor and you hear these stories, um, they irk you for a long time. I heard a story about a fairly sizable church in the, in the town in which I live. And uh, apparently during one of their youth meetings, one of the female assistants started taking the elements, the bread, and throwing it out to the kids. Um, that was how they distributed the elements. Threw them out, not making this up. I'm sure that happens more often than any of us would like to imagine. And, um, and it, it shows the flippancy with which many people approach the supper. There are many, many, many churches where the warnings would not be read. There are many churches where uh, anyone, no matter who they are, not knowing anything about them, uh, many churches where anyone would be welcome to come and partake. I, I was shocked in my early years of church planning to notice um, how many relatives of members of our church plant got angry 
um, when they heard us give the warnings and say things like, if you're not a baptized member of a Bible-believing church that preaches God's word faithfully, um, we would ask you not to partake. And I would have members come to me and tell me how angry their sister or their father or even their neighbor was when they heard that. And I remember thinking, well, if they don't love Jesus, why would they want to feed on something that symbolizes Jesus? That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> if they're not trusting Jesus, why would they want that? Well, people think they have a right to everything. We live in a society in which we think, I have a right to everything, you have a right to everything, you do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. Um, the possibilities are endless, and so then when we come to things like what we do in a worship service, people think, well, who are they to exclude me? And, and, and so we very quickly realize when we start to survey the landscape of the church in America today, how many different views there are and approaches to um, preparation for the Lord's Supper and even the administration of it. Now, uh, when we take a step back and we go into church history, and it's so important that we do this, we, we really need to love the history of the church and um, love what God has done in the church and what the Holy Spirit has done in the church. We, we also start to realize that there, there's a lot of diversity, even in the Reformed Church, about the subject of preparation for the Lord's Supper and the administration of the Supper and who is welcome to partake, who is not welcome to partake. Hughes uh, Elephant Old has written the best book on this, so if you have a sleeping disorder... Uh, if you, uh, I like to say this about G.K. Beale too. If you have trouble sleeping and you don't want to take Xanax, you could always uh, you could always read Holy Communion in the Piety of the Reformed Church, and it's excellent. It's excellent. It's the best work on this subject probably ever written. And Dr. Old will go through the history of the Reformed Church from Calvin on and talk about the many aspects that are dealing with these things. A lot of what I want to talk about this morning, I have drawn out of that work. Now, um, when, we, when we go to church history, especially to the Reformed Church, because this is a Reformed Church, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, there are other ministers here in the Associate uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, the ARP, um, we are naturally going to gravitate to John Calvin. We're, we're going to go back to the great Genevan reformer, and we're going to say, well, what was the practice in Geneva, and what can we glean from Calvin? And there's a lot that we can glean from John Calvin. Um, the Lord's Supper was a tense subject in Geneva. Some of you will know that Calvin had chosen out of Geneva in part because the city council of that Christian city at that time wanted to mandate that every citizen of Geneva should be able to take the Lord's Supper. It was an issue of participation. And Calvin really revolted at that idea, understanding that not everyone, just because they were a citizen of that city, necessarily was in a spiritual condition, uh, united to Christ, necessarily where they would be worthy partakers. That was part of the issue um, that Calvin was dealing with there with the council in Geneva. And, um, and so there's a lot that we glean with, from Calvin on these things. Uh, Dr. Old gives us a survey of Calvin's practice in Geneva with regard to administering the supper. Now, that's important, because here's what I want to emphasize this morning, first and foremost. When we talk about preparation for the supper, so when we're talking about any of us in this room, no matter who we are, 
preparing to come to the table, one of the, the main things that we're going to see, uh, both in the example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, as well as in the practice of um, most, if not all, ministers in serious-minded Protestant churches and Reformed churches, you're going to see that the minister plays the initiatory role in the preparation in drawing others in to prepare for the supper. Um, even the words of instruction are preparation for drawing people in to prepare themselves, to examine themselves, right? There's that symbiotic thing happening. The minister is giving the instruction, he's giving the teaching, and the people are responding, they're processing um, all of these things. Uh, that's very different than the Roman Catholic Church. In, in the Church of Rome, and before we get into Calvin here, just so that we get this out there, Rome views uh, the supper as a sacrifice. They don't view the table as a table. They view it as an altar. Um, that is a huge difference that uh, Protestant, true Protestant churches would have as over against Roman Catholicism. Um, we have pastors, not priests. In Rome, the, the priest will come up to the altar he will turn his back to the people. He will say, Hocus Corpus. He will give his priestly intention. And then, by some form of priestcraft, the bread turns into the body of Jesus and the, the wine turns into the blood of Jesus. And so then there's no preparation for you in Rome because, according to Rome, the elements have everything in them. They work out of themselves. The grace of God is embedded in them like vehicles or instruments. It's the categories are going to be, be employed. And, and they work ex opere operato, out from themselves, so that the priest just comes and he turns on the faucet. And the people come, no matter how they've lived, no matter what they've done, they come to Mass. Christ is re-sacrificed. The priest utters... The uh, Hocus Corpus, and I know you've heard this, that's where we get Hocus Pocus from. That was the joke, the play off of that. And magically the elements change, and that's all the preparation necessary. Now, in Protestant churches, and Reformed churches, it's going to be very different than that. Um, you kind of see, don't you, the first story I told you about the woman throwing out the elements. In some ways, and I want to be careful here, it's not all that different from what Rome does. Because it says, hey, you know, this just does it out of itself. Don't worry about anything. Just take it. Eat it. It's good. It's going to work. It's going to work no matter what. doesn't matter who's taking it. Obviously, Rome would want you to be a member of a Roman Catholic Church. But on the whole, they are saying this works no matter what. And it does what it's supposed to do no matter what condition you're in, no matter what preparation you've done. Um... By way of contrast, the reformers are going to have a very, very well thought through and strategic approach to helping the congregants prepare for the supper. So, uh, Dr. Old said in, in Strasbourg, Calvin concluded the pastoral prayer with a recitation of the Lord's Prayer. The congregation then began to sing the Apostles' Creed while the minister prepared the bread and the wine on the table. When the sing singing of the Creed concluded, the minister offered the communion invocation. In Geneva, this communion invocation had to be added to the prayers of intercession. Apparently, the city council wanted nothing that even resembled the canon of the Mass. We suspect that Calvin was much happier with the Strasbourg arrangement. Now, why 
Calvin had his members sing the Apostles' Creed is that there was an element of instruction occurring unto the, prep, unto the coming to the table. That was part of the preparation. Um, they sang together what he believed to be the essential elements of Christianity. And in doing so, the people were preparing themselves. They were saying, this is what I believe. This is the God in whom I believe. This is the Christ whom I, I'm trusting. And so there was, there was, in one sense, and I don't like the word catechetical, I don't think it's helpful in a culture that doesn't use it in any other uh, place except in Reformed churches, but it was catechetical, it was instructive, there was, there was an element of Christian discipleship happening even as they prepared to come to the table, and they sang together the Apostles' Creed, and they recited the Lord's Prayer together. And then Calvin would... Um, would pray, and this is one of the prayers he would pray, Heavenly Father, full of all goodness and mercy, we pray that as our Lord Jesus Christ not only offered up on the cross his body and his blood for the remission of sins, but also wished to communicate them to use for our nourishment unto eternal life. So there, even in the prayer, he is instructing. There is more instruction for the preparation of the people coming to the table. Now, Calvin never um, speaks of preparatory Lord's Supper seasons, per se. He doesn't, he doesn't um, use the language of Eucharistic preparation or communion season. There was, however, in Geneva, a, a preparation time, a communion season. And Calvin would preach sermons that focused on, specifically on the death of Jesus, especially those gospel narratives at the end of the gospel records that are focused on the actual historical um, and theological details going on in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Reformation Heritage Books published a book, I think back in the early 2000s, on the deity of Christ and other sermons, I think it's called, and it has in it eight <coughs> sermons on the passion of Christ. And those were communion sermons. Hughes Old is actually going to walk you through this in his book. Those are communion sermons Calvin will mention in several of them. Tomorrow we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and so they are preparatory sermons. Now one of the things that Calvin does, and this is going to become very important in um, the Puritan understanding of the Lord's Supper and the Westminster Assembly and all their documents, which we'll talk about here in a moment, um, Calvin is going to go through all the surroundings of the sufferings of Christ in the Gospel records, and he's going to focus on the different individuals who are interacting with Jesus as he goes to the cross. So, um, he's going to have a sermon on Peter denying Jesus. He's going to have a sermon on that's going to deal in part with Judas betraying Jesus. He's going to have a sermon in which he emphasizes Caiaphas pretending interest in Jesus. He's going to have a sermon in which he deals with Pilate and his hypocrisy and the guilt that he has in, in turning Jesus over to the people. He's going to have a sermon in which he contrasts Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal. He's going to have a sermon in which he focuses on the two thieves on the cross and, and what's happening with them, the one who is mocking the Lord, the other who was mocking the Lord and then repents. And what Calvin is going to do in all of these preparatory sermons, he's going to focus on these individuals and their reaction to Jesus. 
And then he's going to turn to the people and he's going to essentially say, now, let us not be like Pilate. Let us make sure that we're not like Caiaphas. Let us examine our lives to see if there is um, anything in us that's ashamed of Christ, like Peter, who denied the Lord as he warmed himself outside the fire. So Calvin's going to give us a number of those things. He is also, while he gives those warnings and that call to self-examination, and that's really what that is, is he's saying, let's examine ourselves, let's make sure where we are in relation to Christ and, and how we think about Christ and what our lives say um, in regard to that. Uh, Calvin is also going to emphasize the benefits of the sacrament. So both, in a sense, the warning... Let a man examine himself, lest he partake unworthily. And he's going to use all those figures in the historical setting of Jesus' sufferings. And then he's going to focus on the benefits. So Calvin says in that first sermon on Matthew 26, So then, let each one observe what benefit the Holy Supper ought to confer on us. Let us bring a true faith, knowing why our Lord Jesus was sent to us by God his Father, what his office is, how he is still today our mediator as he always was. Let us be so united to him that it may not only be for each one of us that something may be said, but for all. Let us have mutual concord and brotherhood together, since he has sustained and bore the condemnation that was pronounced by God the Father upon all of us. Let us aim at that, and let each one come here not only for himself, but let him try to draw his companions to it. So there again... I mentioned last night there was the vertical, your relationship to the Lord as you come, and then there's a horizontal dimension, even in our preparations. Calvin says, essentially, let's encourage each other to be preparing to come and to want to come and to want to feed on Christ in the supper. So Calvin is both going to emphasize in those eight or so sermons on the passion of Christ, he's going to emphasize both the warnings and then what we might say are the benefits or the promises associated with the supper. Now, those two categories are very basic. Benefits, privileges, blessing, warnings. That's it. Everything necessary for us to come to the table and prepare ourselves to come to the table are bound up in those two things. Interestingly, those are the two aspects that the members of the Westminster Assembly, the Puritans um, in the mid-1600s, mid-17th century, who were commissioned by Parliament to write uh, what we now have as the Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Shorter Catechism, Directory of Public Worship, and all these other documents, they are going to highlight in, in their various documents those two elements. They're going to highlight the benefit, the blessing, uh, that believers should be uh, receiving from the supper, and they're also going to highlight the warnings. Now, um, one of the untapped, one of the untapped resources, I, I believe, in our day is the Directory of Public Worship, uh, because most uh, Presbyterian denominations haven't adopted that to be part of their doctrinal standards, we might say. Uh, the Director of Public Worship was really a pastoral manual. So the, um, the Puritan ministers were giving their advice. Here's how to officiate a wedding. Here's how to officiate a funeral. So anything having to do with pastoral ministry on the whole, they were giving their advice and counsel. 
they would give prayers, they would give verbiage, they would give uh, instruction, they would give theology in, in, in this manual. And when they come to their section on the Lord's Supper, the celebration of the communion and sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they say this. I want to read a couple things to us here just to highlight this focus on preparation. Uh, they say, where this sacrament cannot with convenience be frequently administered. So they were for frequent observance of the supper. That's what they're saying. They're saying we should do it often. But where we can't, for some reason, do it often, they say it is requisite that public warning be given the Sabbath day before the administration and that either then or on some other day of the week, something concerning the ordinance and the due preparation unto and participation thereof ought to be taught. So they are taking very seriously that ministers ought to do their job in preparing the people to come to the table. Now, that is going to, in some opinion, in my opinion, that's going to run a little bit wild, especially in the Scottish church, where they're going to practice something called close <coughs> communion, which means only if you're a member of this local congregation can you partake. So you couldn't visit one of their churches and partake necessarily in a strict close communion. And then they went beyond that and they actually gave tokens out to the members of the church they believed were properly instructed and were not living a scandalous life. And so then you would come with your token that the church owned. They were usually made of bronze or tin. And then later, the fancy churches in Charleston got silver ones. And then this really fancy one up in New York got ivory. <laughs> they got ivory tokens. And the people would bring the token, and then they'd be able to come and participate in the supper, having been examined by the elders. Now, there are things that are commendable about that. It, often, it also feels a bit like overreach. The Apostle Paul, when he gives that warning in 1 Corinthians 11, he calls the people to examine themselves. There is a there is a burden on the individual to respond to the warning, to examine their own hearts and lives. Um, and yet, the, the Puritans wanted to take seriously how, how important it was that we were prepared to come to the table. Now, there was a solemnity which, uh, with which they approached this, the sacrament. Um, for, the, for the Puritans in Westminster, the supper was nothing less... <coughs> Then a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. You can just think of Stevie Wonder, sign, sealed, delivered. <laughs> the best way to remember the theology of the sacrament. I know it's cheap, but I mean, anytime I'm preparing anything, I'm thinking about Stevie Wonder. Saying, sign, sealed, delivered. Jesus is signifying sealing and giving himself to his people in the sacrament. It is instituted by him, and so there should be a solemnity about that. There should be a reverence. It's unthinkable that somebody would throw the elements out. I mean, this is representing the Lord Jesus. Now, we shouldn't be raising the elements like Rome did in veneration or worship. And so we're walking this very fine line between a sort of a um, a, a cheapening and an emptying of the weightiness and the significance of the supper and then elevating it to a place um, 
where it is um, inappropriately being put in the place of Christ or being raised above the word. Um, again, as Dr. Ross noted earlier, the sacrament is always accompanied by the word. In one sense, it's subservient <coughs> to the word. Not everyone agrees on that. But there's a sense in which the sacrament is just below the word in importance because it demands the word, the scripture, to interpret it, to define it, and for it to be properly carried out. So, um, but we don't want to so cheapen it that we're throwing out the elements to people or just, hey, come on in. Everybody can just come on in and take the supper. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody can just come and take. So the Puritans are going to walk this very fine line, as Calvin did, where they're not going to want to discourage true believers, um, but they're not going to want to welcome what they call the scandalous or the um, uninformed so if someone is living an openly rebellious, unrepentant life, they are going to be very strict that that person is not prepared to come to the table. Even if they're baptized, even if they're a quote-unquote member of the church. If, um, if the person, and, and I think they have younger children in mind here when they talk about um, those lacking instruction, um, they might also have new converts in mind. But those who have not been ad- adequately taught um, the, el- the essential truths of the Christian religion and what the sacrament is, that they would rightly say that person is not yet prepared to come to the table. Um, I have a nine-year-old son and a ten-year-old son, both of whom are showing spiritual, mature, uh, spiritual sincerity, which I'm incredibly thankful for. Um, and my wife and I talk about whether or not they should come to meet with the elders to come to the table. And one of the things that we, we uh, in our church, want to emphasize, especially with the children of believers, is that we are looking for both sincerity and maturity. So you might think sincerity is enough. I really do believe that my two older sons love the Lord Jesus. But are they mature enough in their understanding to prepare themselves to come. We have weekly communion in my church, and so we want them to understand exactly what it is that's happening and what their responsibility is as they come and they feed on Christ. So we're not trying to keep Christ from them, and, and I often emphasize to them, you can still feed on Christ without feeding on the bread and the wine at this point. You can still feed on him by faith as he's preached, as he's revealed in the word. We are all to be feeding on Christ by faith. Um, so I think when the Puritans are talking about the issue of preparation and they're talking about that issue of um, uh, those who have not been properly instructed, they have in mind either new, convert, new converts or young congregants who um, need to be developed in their maturity and their understanding of the Christian faith. Now, they... Um, in the Directory of Public Worship, the Puritans will go on to say that after the minister has um, first expressed, and this is their language, the inestim- inestimable benefit. That's a really hard word to say. <laughs> the great, really great, unsurpassed benefit. <laughs> they are to, they are to, they are to emphasize what an awesome thing the Lord's Supper is. And having emphasized that, first, 
They are, secondly, to emphasize the great necessity of having our comforts and strength renewed in our pilgrimage and warfare. Dr. Ross, again, explained that in his talk. We want to be built up more... Christ, who we're already united to, always united to. We want to be strengthened. And I like those two categories when they're talking about helping the people to hear themselves strengthened in our pilgrimage and our warfare. Isn't that awesome? The whole of the Christian life can really be summed up in that. We are pilgrims journeying through this barren wasteland of a world, the glory, just like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, and he is battling. We are making war. And so we need to be strengthened and comforted and build up. Now, how often the evil one is attacking us um, and, and accusing us and trying to shake our assurance in Christ. That's something that doesn't get talked about enough um, in our churches, that Satan loves, he's the accuser of the brethren. And so after he's lost you to Christ, after Christ has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Satan is going to aim all of his accusatory malice at the people that belong to Christ and try to shake them and steal their assurance. Now, that's going to become a big issue. The Puritans are going to deal with the issue of assurance and the table a lot. And I want to touch on that briefly before uh, the close here. Now, okay, once they've taught the inestimable benefit of the sacrament, once they've taught the great necessity of having our comforts and strength renewed for our pilgrimage and warfare, they are then to give the warnings, um, the warnings that only true believers and those who are not scandalous or um, who have not been properly educated. Now, um, when we come to the larger catechism, that's the more substantive exposition of the Christian faith that the same uh, ministers wrote for us, they're going to give us four questions and answers in the Catechism, four that deal specifically with preparation. And I want us to just walk out of this time together focusing on what they say in these four things, because I think it's immensely helpful. The first question they're going to ask is larger Catechism 171. Um, they're going to say, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? They're just going to straight out ask the question, how are you to prepare yourself? And here's the answer they give. Uh, they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ. That's the first thing. Are you united to the Savior? Everything Dr. Ross talked about. Are you united to say that's the most important thing about preparation? Have I trusted in the Lord Jesus? Have I believed in communion with Christ? If I've come to him, if I've trusted in him, he said, I'll no wise cast you out. The one that comes to me, I will raise up on the last day. Uh, there was an old maxim for uh, some who were struggling with assurance. It's not a, it's not a comprehensive... Uh, cure for people struggling with assurance, but some of the Puritan ministers would ask the question, if you ask yourself the question, have I ever come to Christ? And I said no, and I knew I was lying, because I knew I had come to Christ. 
then I, I could I could gain back some assurance because Jesus said, the one that comes to me, I will never cast out. Mm. So if you've come to him, and you know you've gone to him, I'm not saying you're communing with him as you ought, or you are living for him to the degree that he wants you to be living for him, but you have come to him, you are trusting in him, then there is a regaining of assurance. But here, we're to examine ourselves of our being in Christ. Now listen to this. Secondly, we're to examine of our sins and our wants. What sin is there in my life that I'm maybe not dealing with? What am I lacking in my life that I know I should be pursuing according to God's word? Um, then, the Puritans say that we are to prepare ourselves by examining ourselves of the truth and measure of our knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God, and the brethren. So... Um, am I meditating on his word? Do I understand the truth of his word? Am I pursuing faith? Am I pursuing repentance? Am I loving the Lord? Am I loving his people? Remember, Jesus will uh, make our relationship to others a matter of supreme importance, right? If you have something against your brother, or your brother has something against you, that you're to leave your gift at the altar. That's got to be one of the most under-obeyed teachings of Jesus. How many, I, I, I have been so disheartened in my short Christian life at how many rips there are among ministers in the same denomination. Um, sometimes in the same towns and cities um, uh, over envy or jealousy or whatever. And, and not going to one another. Um, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar, go to you first be reconciled to your brother, then come and worship. So, um, when we come to the table, the Puritans are going to emphasize the part preparation, the important part of examining. Do I have anything against? Now, sometimes, I do want to say this, sometimes you've had a falling out with a believer, and you're grieved over that, and there's no peace in your conscience, and you feel, I need to be reconciled with this person, and you go to that person, or you have one of your friends go to them because you're afraid to go to them. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't reciprocate. They don't reciprocate. And they've hardened their heart. And you've sought reconciliation. That's all you can do. And at that point, you have to have peace. I've sought to be reconciled with this individual. But as much, the Apostle Paul says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The Puritans are going to emphasize that in our preparation, it's not just our relationship with the Lord that matters. It's also our relationship with the brothers, the brethren, and they say, uh, we are to examine ourselves as to charity to all men. So am I loving others? Am I seeking to be charitable and kind, to bear the burdens of others, to care for others? Uh, forgiving those who have done wrong. Am I forgiving others who have hurt me? Uh, we're to examine ourselves of our desires after Christ, of our desire for new obedience, of our desire for renewing the exercises of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. I know it's work, but it's helpful. Um, those would be, that's the big umbrella of what it looks like to prepare ourselves to be partaking in supper. Now let me say this just briefly. Those are things we should be doing anyway, regardless of, of what we're thinking about the supper 
at this particular moment, those are things that we should always be doing. Uh, one of the reasons I love weekly communion, and our, it's a little bit questionable in the PCA, and Presbyterian Church in America, our book of church order, our sort of manual for how we're supposed to do things, seems to intimate that the, before communion there should be a time of preparation, which then there's a question, well, you know, is, is, can you do that if you have weekly communion? And I'd like to say to our congregation, just like in all of our Christian life, we should constantly, everything's preparation. should never be a point. We shouldn't so elevate coming to the Lord's table. I was in a 1,500-person church, and I noticed they, they had communion, uh, I think it was quarterly in this particular congregation. And maybe 1,100 people showed up on the Sundays when there wasn't the Lord's Supper, and like 1,500 would show up on the Sundays when they observed the Lord's Supper. And I started to see this as a pattern. And I started to think, why do these 400 people only show up when they're celebrating the Lord's Supper? Because they were exalting it to a place that they shouldn't have been. They were almost raising it to a superstitious level. This is the really special thing. And that would be to fail to miss the point that these are things that we should always be doing in our lives. So that coming to the table, in one sense, is no different than just living as a Christian and seeking to please the Lord in what we do, in our day-in and day-out interactions and experience. Okay, very quickly. Uh, the second question they ask, and this is very important, uh, 172, may one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? That's a very important question. Um, the doctrine of assurance is something that has not gotten enough attention. As I noted already in our day, Joel Beakey has done a tremendous job uh, if you ever want to read good books on assurance, he has a book called The Quest for Full Assurance, I believe. Joel Beeky, B-E-E-K-E. Um, he just came out with a very little book on assurance that's excellent. And he's really trying to pastorally help people. Because I'm convinced that more people struggle with doubts of their salvation, more true believers, than we talk about, than they would often admit. They might tell a good friend they're struggling, but it's oftentimes not known. Um, that was a major subject in the Puritan pastoral practice, and especially with the table. And so here, they ask the question, if you're doubting your salvation, you're going through a time where you're struggling, you're feeling condemned, maybe over a particular sin, you don't feel like you've prepared yourself enough, should you come to the table? That's a vital question. That's a pertinent question. Here's what they say. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have a true interest in Christ, though he is not yet assured. And in God's account, if he is duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, if he's longing for it, or she is longing, Lord, assure my heart, send your spirit to bear witness with my spirit that I am a son and or a daughter of God. They're crying out to the Lord for it. They're fighting for it. They're pursuing it. And for whatever reason, they're in a time of spiritual darkness. The Puritans here are saying, um, nevertheless, if they're doing those things, they say this sacrament is appointed for the relief 
of weak and doubting believers. Isn't that wonderful? So if you're struggling with assurance, the sacrament is an aid to help you grow in assurance that Christ has given himself for you. That his body has been broken for you. That the wrath of God has been uh, turned away and propitiated, turned away, satisfied, uh, dealt with, removed from you because it fell on him, um, and that your sins are forgiven. That's one of the sweet things. We come to the supper. We're coming. Lord, make me to know that my sins are forgiven. And he is strengthening us in the knowledge that his body has been broken, his blood has been shed to forgive us. And so they say that you may come, and, and I love this, listen to this, because, Dr. Ross was hitting on this earlier, because promises are made by God, and this sacrament is appointed for the relief of weak and doubting Christians. So that the working of the sacrament, well, yes, you need to be coming to Christ in faith, and yes, you need to be feeding on him in faith. It doesn't just work magically out of itself. Nevertheless, it works because God has promised that what Christ has done works in the souls of his people by the secret working of the Holy Spirit, taking the sacrifice of Christ and applying it to us. And so when we feed on the bread and the wine, the promises of God are at work. Isn't that awesome? God, the immutable God, the unchangeable God, who confirms it by the oath, the two immutable things, which it's impossible for God to lie. The table says, this is truth. This is truth for you. And so I love that. Uh, 172, they deal with doubts. We don't have time to go through all of this, but let me just read one more of these for us. A very brief one. Question 173, may any who profess the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper be kept from it? So, if a man or a woman says they're a Christian, I mean, who are you to keep the supper from them? Well, <laughs> the spirits are going to say, actually, there, there are. Again, they say, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous. So if somebody doesn't really understand the, the essentials of the Christian faith, they're not mature enough in their knowledge. Or scandalous, so we don't want to welcome people who are living in open, unrepentant, scandalous sin. Um, I'm not going to give you a catalog of what that is. I think it's often self-evident what those things would be when they happen. <coughs> They say they can be kept from the supper, notwithstanding their profession of faith, and desire to come to the Lord's Supper. They may and ought to be kept from the sacrament by that power which Christ has given his church until they receive instruction and manifest their repentance or reformation. Um, I want us to leave with this thought in mind. While we while we don't want to view the, the Lord's Supper in such a cheap and um, empty way as it's just this, you know, it's just the bread and the wine, come on, everybody come on up here, it's for everybody no matter what. We don't want to view it that way. It is holy. The Lord is holy. Bread is just bread, the wine is just wine, it doesn't change into anything. But Christ has set those things apart and sets them apart from their common use for a special use. 
And so we want to view it appropriately, but then we don't want to elevate it so high that we view it in some sort of superstitious way. And so we're walking this very fine line when we deal with preparation for the Lord's Supper. Um, There's a lot of error that can happen here if we're not careful. We don't want to keep the supper from people to whom it's due. I, I try to say it almost every week to our people because we do we give the warnings that if you're living in open unrepentant sin, please don't come. If you won't repent, sometimes I say, you know, if you're just really bored with everything I've just said about Jesus, please don't take the supper. Uh, we want people that are loving Christ, coming to the table, loving the truths about Christ. But then I often say to the people, but if you're struggling with a particular sin and you hate it. And it's weighing you down. And you're wondering whether you shouldn't come. But you hate this sin. You hate dishonoring the Lord. You want freedom from it. You you want to live in light of your union with Christ. And the power of sin that's been broken already. Um, This suffers for you. You come. You flee to Christ. You take Him. You confess your sin. You cry out to Him for growth and grace. There's There's that fine line. You don't want to keep people that should be coming from coming. But we also don't want to welcome people to the table who shouldn't be taking because there are a lot of people who don't have a saving interest in Jesus. Um, and so I think God has appointed especially ministers to help guide this process. Um, and he's given us a, a number of great examples in the history of the church to help with that. So 